You're listening to Season 3 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 41 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 3.34, The Pillar of Heaven, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan and hoping to win the 2021 Pudutsar Prize for Best Gundam Podcast. And I'm Nina, new to Double Zeta, and recently we've received complaints that we are downers. But it's not our fault that Gundam has been an endless parade of horrors and sadness. <laughs> Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 446 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters. Scott H., Chandran D., Trendy Roo, and Mark S. Your support pays for recording equipment, research materials, web hosting, and more, so that we can keep making MSB. Also, hello to some returning patrons. We see you. And some special thanks to patrons who bought us items from our wish list. In the books category, Stephen R. bought us Anime A History, The Anime Ecology, Anime A Critical Introduction, and The Art of Fantasy, Sci-Fi, and Steampunk. Shinizel got us Judy Wakabayashi's Japanese-English translation and Bushido, The Soul of Japan. And Mark M. got us The Influence of Japanese Art on Design. And then Lawrence M. sent us both of the ginger teas that we like. We are feeling the belated holiday love. Thank you all so much, and we look forward to digging into these books for future episodes of the podcast. If you want to check out our wishlist, it's linked along with other ways to support us at GundamPodcast.com support. This week we are covering Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta Episode 36, Purutu Under Gravity, or Juryokuka no Purutsu. This episode originally aired on November 8th, 1986. It was written by Kamata Hidemi and directed by Takamatsu Shinji, with storyboards by Takamatsu and Tomino himself. For our research this week, Nina is going to be talking about the state of cloning science in the 1980s. But first, the recap for Pudu 2 Under Gravity. Rusty panels flash past as the colony comes crashing to Earth. Wind swirls, light flashes, nearby buildings explode. The unpredictable air currents pull at mobile suits and core fighters alike, sucking them away from each other and toward the maelstrom. For safety's sake, the Argama descends, sticking close to the ground and waiting for the effects of the initial impact to pass. From a distance, Dublin looks like a painting of hell. All darkness and destruction and fire, air thick with smoke and seemingly endless rain of junk. Just above the clouds is a different world. Although the colony juts through these clouds, the dense layer of water vapor blocks any view of the ground, 
and all is clear blue skies and shining sunlight. Clear, that is, except for the presence of the Neo-Zeon ship, the Sandra, commanded by Glemi Toto. Once the wind dies down, the Double Zeta emerges from the rubble. Somehow the colony is still standing, a crooked pillar between heaven and earth. An image flashes through Judo's mind, a swirling mass of red and black, like a heap of bodies, accompanied by the muffled moans and cries of an entire city. He holds his head, a grimace of pain on his face, and tears streaming down his cheeks. Camille's voice urges him to use his anger to fight on. Despite reported damage to all sectors of the ship, the Argama launches again. They need to contact the Audumla, find the Gundam team, and keep looking for survivors. Determined to destroy the Argama and distinguish himself, Glemmy wakes Pudu too. In her bed in the Argama's infirmary, Pudu shivers. She can feel something coming. And across the sea, running down the shore, Camille feels it too. Pudu too seems completely calm. When Glemmy starts to talk vaguely about opportunity in battle, she tells him to cut to the chase. What exactly does he want her to do? And she is just as impassive, even sanguine, when Glemmy announces that the Sandra is continuing on to Kilimanjaro to rendezvous with Haman, leaving Pudutu behind in the Psycho Gundam to deal with the Argama. Pudu's sense of wrongness, sense of dread, does not dissipate. Shinta and Kum find her collapsed in a passageway, trying to get to the Kubele so that she can protect the Argama, but still too weak even to walk through the ship. Instead, Bright has her hospital bed brought to the bridge. From there, she directs the targeting of the ship's beam cannon, down to the degree, even against an enemy none of them can see yet. They fire through the colony, and the beam hits but does not seem to damage the Psycho Gundam. Once the light of the beam dissipates, they are able to identify the enemy mobile armor, but in the commotion, Pudu has gone. She musters the strength to get to the Kubele, and launches. Meanwhile, Rue uses the Zeta to dig through the rubble, and finds El and Eno. Their core fighters are so damaged, the Gundam team decides to abandon them, and the two get into Bicha and Mondo's Dorai. With the Zeta riding along on top, they continue searching for Judo, the Argama, and the Audumla, and soon spot the massive Karaba ship. It seems to be losing altitude and is not responding to hails, and the worried Gundam team go to investigate. They land on top of the massive plane, and Bicha, Mondo, and Ino get in through a lookout port. Inside, they find all the ship's bridge crew dead. Flying around to the hangar, El and Rue find that there are no Karaba soldiers left aboard. The crowd of survivors tell them that all of the Karaba members launched in mobile suits and Dodai, and none returned. From the Audumla, the Gundam team finally make contact with the Argama, and both ships head out to sea. The Psycho Gundam and the Kubele fight on, both pilots unsure why they feel so strange. They seem to attack each other in the same way, to anticipate each other, to counter perfectly, to cancel each other out. What are you? Pudu yells in fear and frustration. Judo arrives and orders Pudu back to the Argama. He tries to take advantage of the moment when the Psycho Gundam transforms into its humanoid shape, but shots from the Double Zeta have no effect. The mobile suit and mobile armor chase each other around the fallen colony, with the Double Zeta dangerously low on energy. When the Psycho Gundam's extender arms shoot forward and grab the Double Zeta, 
Judo fires all of his rockets, and the explosion knocks him back, puncturing the side of the colony. Pieces of the stricken colony begin to slide downward, breaking apart, while a torrent of dirt, plants, and other colony guts fall steadily to the city below. Even this landslide cannot keep the Psycho Gundam down. Pudutu emerges laughing to tower over the powerless Double Zeta, and Pudu returns to shield Judo from her counterpart's attack. She has figured out who the other pilot is and calmly confronts this other version of herself. But even the Kubele is no match for the massive mobile armor, and in a last-ditch suicidal effort, Pudu aims the battered Kubele at the Psycho Gundam's cockpit. When the dust of the explosion clears, much of the Psycho Gundam's armor has torn or melted away, but it still stands. The Double Zeta, suddenly powered by Judo's new type abilities and his horror at Pudu's death, manages to do real damage to his enemy, and Pudu too tries to get away in an escape pod. It is then, through a tear in the pod, that Judo first sees Pudu too, and understands that Pudu was killed by Pudu. The shock of it causes him to lose power and the Double Zeta falls to the sea to be retrieved by the Argama. Well, I guess we were wrong about Mashima. Hmm. Glemmy at least believes that Mashima will be receiving the credit for the quote-unquote success of the colony drop, and so clearly Mashima was in some way instrumental. Hmm. I'd like to say that we'll learn more about that. But after 50 episodes of Zeta and 35-some episodes of Double Zeta, I'm not sure that I can confidently say that all the loose threads will be picked up at some point later on. Certainly, it's nice to be reminded that Mashima is a character in this show. Speaking of characters who are kind of a joke, should we talk about Glemmy? <laughs> Only ever kind of a joke, though. Yeah, let's talk about Glemmy. Well, we get this scene, the one where he mentions Mashima, and he's monologuing to himself on the bridge, and all I could think about that whole scene was the pilot of the ship, who must be sitting there thinking like, yeah, and I have to work for you. <laughs> The reason that I describe Glemmy as a joke is partially because of this image in my head of, you know, him monologuing to himself, but also because of how he interacts with Pudu 2. We, of course, have a lot to say about Pudu and Pudu 2 in these episodes, but at least with regards to what Pudu 2 sort of brings out of Glemmy or demonstrates about Glemmy, the fact that she can give him a look that makes him take a half step back away from her. Well, from the moment when she wakes up, you can watch Glemmy and you can actually see he's like, he puffs his chest out and he like straightens his spine as much as he can. And he has his chin sort of pointed up so that he can look down his nose at her. His jaw is clenched. His mouth is in like a tight little grimace. Glemmy is made so uncomfortable by this interaction with Pudu, and he's doing everything he can to like assert dominance. He's making himself as like big and imposing as he can. Part of what's fascinating about Pudu too is that despite the fact that she's clearly uh, more on board with what Glemmy wants her to do than Pudu was or than Lino was, 
she is so much less biddable and so much less controllable. And how much of that comes down to the ways in which they've kind of characterized her as an adult? Mm-hmm. Well, she's given a lot of power in the way she's presented in this. And this comes out in that first scene with Glemmy, where Glemmy looks so uncomfortable. And I think the reason he's so uncomfortable is because Glemmy just like can't deal with other people challenging his power, challenging his authority. When they're willing to like kneel to him and acknowledge his superiority, he can be more uh, relaxed and natural. But with Puru too, it's like a clash of these two people, and Pudutu is never willing to concede that Glemmy is, like, in charge, even if he outranks her. A lot of that comes from Pudutu's very, like, forceful, aggressive personality, which reads as very uh, startling, coming from somebody with a child's body, the way she does. And we have no reason to think she's not a child. She's, like, physically identical to Pudu. We have noted in the past that when Pudu's Saikomu conditioning was particularly strong. The voice acting changed. The voice acting was not, this is a young child's voice. The voice acting was, this is a woman's voice. The way that Pudutu carries herself feels adult. The way they have her speak, the way they have her look at Glemmy. You talked about Glemmy trying to exude power. And my favorite example of that in this scene is actually not even the physical stuff. It's when he tries to be sort of like vague and lecturing and it's like, well, sometimes in battle there are these opportunities <laughs> and da 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 da. And Pudu 2 is just like, spit it out. You want right. me to go destroy the Argama to make you look good? He puts on these pretensions of being like the wise, older, experienced soldier with all of these bon mots about what it means to fight in war and whatnot. But of course, he's just a ridiculous like little princeling. And again, that incisiveness that they give her, that insight into Glemmy and into the situation in which she finds herself, that doesn't feel like a nine-year-old or 10 or 11 and it did call to mind and we have to bring up that there is something of a lolicon trope of having characters who look like young girls and then hand waving of like oh no but actually on the inside they're an adult oh no actually she's a 400 year old dragon right it's a sort of process of giving cover and the way in which that plays out in this scene with regards to her nudity also because she is naked the whole time. Right. She's naked for this entire scene. And for like a grown woman, there is a kind of power in nudity and in not being ashamed and in just being like, yeah, this is my body. So what? And that can, in certain circumstances, like make men uncomfortable <laughs> uh, and, and certainly can be a way to like exert power or put the person that you're interacting with on, on the back foot, so to speak. But it's weird to give that to such a young girl. Mm -hmm. It's not like she doesn't understand that nudity is not socially acceptable in the way that like very young children just don't understand what the big deal is with being naked. And she's not at all like ashamed or uncomfortable with being naked. And so it feels like a power play, which feels like an adult thing and not a child thing. Given what we know, or at least what we strongly suspect about the origins of Puru's name, uh, the implications of her sharing her name with a 
magazine for drawn depictions of child pornography, any scene that involves her being naked or in any state of undress is always going to raise a lot of red flags about the intentions of those scenes. Do they exist for titillation to attract a certain kind of viewer to this show? Are they fan service? But there are also ways in which the depiction of Purutu here naked does convey a lot of meaning and, and works really well artistically. When a character is naked, when a person is naked, we understand them to be exposed, to be vulnerable. Puru 2 is not exposed by her nakedness and is not made vulnerable by it. She is not embarrassed about it. She doesn't even seem to notice. The person who is made uncomfortable in this situation is Glemmy, though I don't think it's because she's naked. No, it's the confidence that she exerts through the entire scene, even though she's just been woken out of a induced coma that she's been in for months. She can step into what's happening with complete confidence. And this subverts our expectations for this scenario in a couple of ways. Firstly, just our expectations for any scene in which one character is naked. And secondly, because we've met LP Puru the first, we know how she would behave in this scene, and it's not the way that Puru too behaves. So for the audience, there's a, a double layer of uh, discontinuity. And we know Glemmy. We know that Glemmy likes to have and exert control over young women. And so seeing him interact with Puru too, who theoretically, he also organized her training and raised her for a purpose and wanted to have or did have similar control over her to see that it has not played out perhaps in, in the way that we think he wanted. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that sense of a false exposure recurs later in the episode. There's a circularness to it. Because at the end of their fight, when Pudu is dead and the explosion from that has damaged the Psycho Gundam Mark II, we see it emerging from the smoke of the battle. And the armor is stripped away. It's about half denuded. You can see the underlying systems. And there's a, a sense of uh, exposure and nakedness to it. And yet, it is still a deadly weapon. It is still functional. Because the only sense of exposure Purutu truly feels is confronting Purutu. The literal and figurative self-confrontation of Purutu versus Purutu feels like the central point of the episode. Obviously, it would be disturbing to look at a real person <laughs> who is you, who looks identical to you, your doppelganger, your clone, they even cut their hair in the same style. That feeling would doubtless be amplified for someone who is a psychic or an empath. But also think about all of the sort of figurative phrases that we have that apply literally in this case. The idea of facing yourself, the idea of looking yourself in the eye, the idea of fighting yourself. And it's no coincidence that the weapons deployed by the Psycho Gundam Mark II in this combat are not just bits, they are specifically reflector bits. 
Their actual function as weapons is that they are capable of reflecting beams, either defensively or the Psycho Gundam can shoot off its beams and then have them reflect off of these bits in order to redirect the beams. But in an episode in which we see Puru facing her own reflection in Puru 2, I'm absolutely certain that the reflector bits are meant to be part of that. Especially because the last time we saw the Psycho Gundam Mark II at the end of Zeta, it did not have reflector bits. Pudu makes a little speech that feels like the thesis of the episode, but at various points contradicts it. There is a, as often occurs in Gundam, a lack of clarity about whether or not there's one message we're meant to take away from this confrontation. Pudu says it's human, it's natural to be disturbed by seeing yourself but that you cannot stop being who you are. It feels like a statement about people being incapable or capable but refusing to uh, really see themselves. However, she immediately refutes this idea of you can't stop being you, you can't destroy yourself by destroying herself. <laughs> well, and screaming, die myself at the same time. And there are these two conflicting ideas of even what the self means in this case and for these two girls, one of whom is a clone of the other. And that's assuming they're not both clones or something. <laughs> First, she says, I'm you and you're me, which has a sense of completeness versus you're a person with only my most violent traits, which makes the clone seem fractional, incomplete. And they both conjure up different feelings about the fight between them and the feasibility of self-destruction in this case, or what self-destruction even means. Because if they're both complete people, but identical, what does it mean for one to kill the other? Metaphorically, is it just self-destruction? Is it suicide if only one of them dies? And then if the clones are fractional, if the clones are only aspects of the original Pudu, assuming such a thing exists, is it like when we try to excise parts of ourselves that we don't like? Is the idea that you can't actually do that, that you cannot cut out or kill parts of yourself, that it doesn't work that way? All of that, of course, being much more interesting than the exterior view from Judo. Oh, Pudu killed Pudu. <laughs> Well, Judo is lagging behind Pudu throughout this whole episode, and actually this is like a recurring thing for him, but he's lagging a little bit behind Pudu in terms of understanding what is going on on that deeper level. I do think that when we see this conflict between Pudu and Pudu 2, and especially in the way they talk about it, it is about you as an individual reckoning with who you are and the multiple people that you are, multiple people at different times in your life and to different people. You know, when we go through life and we experience major changes, there's a continuity to our personality, but there's also a discontinuity. We can look back on ourselves 10 years ago or five years ago and think, wow, I was like a completely different person back then. Each of us is also in a very real sense, multiple people in any given moment. We can be different people in different circumstances. We can behave differently around different friends or at work or at home. And I think part of what's happening when Puru and Puru 2 see each other is that Puru is being forced to acknowledge the parts of her that she hates, the parts of her being, her personality that she abhors. We all have to look at ourselves and acknowledge the things about ourselves we don't like 
the bad things that we've done or the ways in which we continue to participate in systems that we hate and to benefit from injustices that we would like to stop. And I think it may be intended as a kind of metaphor for trauma that what happens here is we have the complete childish, energetic, ganky Puru who is then displaced and the person who replaces them looks just like her, but she's hard, brittle, violent, adult imitating. She's the survivor from this traumatic, self-destructive event. Described like that, the war has quite literally killed the child of Pudu. In Double Zeta as a whole, I think one of the major themes is redundancy, duplication, and replaceability. Lena was replaced by Pudu, who essentially has now been displaced by Pudu too. It is a, a succession of people in this role. The double Zeta, the fact that its beam rifle is double-barreled, the Psycho Gundam Mark II returning, the twin sisters on Moon Moon, the fact that it's called Moon Moon. There's so many parts of this show that repeat like that. Or think about August and how he was very consciously, explicitly afraid of becoming redundant and getting replaced by the next generation of teenage new type super soldiers. I am curious about your statement that Lena is replaced by Pudu, is replaced by Pudu 2, because I see the roles that each of those characters fulfill in the story as being so different that the, they aren't true replacements. Like in terms of the story, in a sense, we're only being given one young girl character at a time, but they're not true replacements for each other. It's not a perfect replacement, but Pudu talked about replacing Lena in Judo's heart. When Pudu and Lena met, they fought over this question of whether or not Pudu could displace Lena and take over her role. And now we're literally seeing an exact duplicate of Pudu killing the original. She may not be stepping onto the crew of the Argama, joining the Gundam team and becoming Judo's little sister, but she is becoming the Pudu. She is waking up, killing the existing Pudu and taking over her identity in a sense. In one way, Pudu seems the more mature, the more insightful through these scenes because she is the first one to realize that they are the same and to cease to be disturbed by it. At first, that sameness that they can feel between each other, that core of uh, identical self under all of the differences, initially that similarity disturbs both of them intensely. Pudu is the first one to be like, oh, I see. However, you know, you talk about accepting those aspects of oneself, accepting the parts of the self that we don't like. Is it acceptance to determine that the best outcome is to not exist anymore? I would say no. I don't think that Pudu is able to reckon with her own capacity for violence and destruction. She ultimately chooses self-destruction in an attempt to destroy that other part of her as well. It's a very Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde kind of thing. And coming on the heels of Hayato feels as though the show would really like to hammer home, oh gosh, now I'm going back even further in the show, <laughs> think about Cecilia. How many people have we seen find themselves in circumstances that they cannot accept and they choose death? 
And sometimes those deaths serve a purpose, but they often feel unnecessary. It feels like an avoidance of something else, mm -hmm. of something more difficult. Maybe the message that comes out of this is a rejection of the desire to turn away from harsh truths. I know they're from totally different time periods, but I find myself thinking about Paranoia Agent. Paranoia Agent is a short anime television show by Kon Satoshi from, I want to say... Early 2000s? Yeah, from the early 2000s, shortly before his death. But in it, there is this young attacker, this young kid on rollerblades who carries a baseball bat and attacks people seemingly out of nowhere, who turns out to be like a personification of our desire to escape from our life, our desire to be freed from pressures and responsibilities and situations that we, we don't know how to get out of, that we feel trapped in, and this sense of even something tragic if it could just happen to us <laughs> in a way that does not like necessitate our making decisions and our taking action, that that provides a, a kind of breathing room or a kind of freedom. But a big part of the underlying message of the show being that that's false, that there is a level of cowardice to that that has to do with our, our unwillingness to confront and deal with our own issues and problems. There's been a lot of discussion on our Discord uh, since last week's episode about how much of Hayato's recklessness is that at a deep level, he does not want to have to tell Fra and the other kids that Katz has died. And if he is reckless, if he dies a big hero saving some people here, then he does not have to take that news home. And however many months ago when we covered the two Crybaby Cecilia episodes, while she may not have picked up that bomb with the intention of dying. Nonetheless, she was looking for an escape, any kind of escape from this life she was living. As you can probably tell from the discussion we just had, we did think that this was a pretty well executed episode and a pretty well executed scene. That being said, while I did like this one and it was well done, I am getting so sick of women and girls dying in order to save and or motivate some boy or man. I went back and I did the math, and in Zeta Gundam, this happened seven or eight times, depending on whether you count four seeming to die in episode 20, The Heated Escape. And it's just... I mean, as a story trope, there's two issues with it. One, it can come off very lazy when it's used excessively because our emotional response to someone sacrificing themselves for someone else is very strong. But if you keep doing this over and over and over again to move the story along or because you can't figure out any other way to motivate your main character, it seems lazy. Two, because it comes off as misogynistic to treat women characters as disposable fuel for like, oh, this male character is a little stuck. Better kill off a woman he cares about to get him moving again. It's funny that you said disposable fuel because not only do they use these deaths to motivate the characters, uh, in a couple of cases, these women have literally given their life force to become fuel to make mobile suits more powerful. 
Emma at the end of Zeta. And now, according to Puru 2, Puru's spirit like goes into the double Zeta and gives it the power to like deflect beams and use its beam saber again. To do anything. It could barely move and the beam saber wouldn't function. And then after Puru dies, suddenly Judo's new type aura, the like new type flames around him are so strong that the double Zeta can move well again. The beam saber works again. There is suddenly new type energy shielding that prevents him from being harmed by the shots from the Psycho Gundam head. And the minute he sees Puru 2, poof, it's gone. He loses it. He cuts open that cockpit and he sees Puru there. Puru, who he thought was dead. In his position, I might have reacted the same way. Oh, it would absolutely be shocking. I just mean it's it's not purely like dead Pudu's energy. It's his feelings about Pudu being dead. And this is a running thing through the whole episode because early on when he is reacting to the mass death that has just occurred, he hears Camille telling him, you have to use this anger to fuel you. You have to let this anger keep you fighting. Camille knows a few things about that. Speaking of that early scene, these are very sad episodes. And while I occasionally get tired of talking about sad stuff, I feel like we would be remiss if we didn't address the very sad aspects of it. Uh, I couldn't help but compare judo in Dublin to some of the ways in which some of us have felt during COVID and this sense of of mass death and grief and loss and that it's overwhelming, that it can make it difficult to function. That it's so big, that there's been so much suffering. And in order to function, you have to sort of ignore it. You have to build those walls in your brain, but you also have to feel it sometimes. And when the wall breaks and you start to feel it and you feel the enormity of it, it's just overwhelming. And I'm a quite sensitive person with a very active imagination. And I think that, you know, contributes to the intensity of feeling that I have about these things. But I'm not a psychic. I'm not an empath. (laughs) Judo is a literal empath and having to live through this moment. And what a horrific burden that would be and how it's kind of a miracle he's not just immediately rendered comatose or or otherwise incapacitated by having the abilities that he has in the midst of this horrifying event. Listen, I've been a 14 and 15 year old boy. And let me tell you, that provides a significant amount of shielding against empathy. Yeah, watching this episode, it struck me how everything is worse than it seemed. And things were bad last week, but now everything is worse. And this starts right from the beginning narration where Judo is clarifying that in fact, very few people escaped from Dublin. It was hard to tell in the prior episode how many people had gotten out, how many were still stuck there. We saw big crowds at the airport. We saw lines of cars, but we didn't see like crowds in the streets. We didn't see people still in their homes. It wasn't clear how much warning they had had, even if it wasn't enough. But now we learn it was basically none. Related to that, I thought the visual composition of this episode, the way in which it was storyboarded and designed, 
was incredible. I thought this was a very visually interesting and moving episode, and they made a lot of unusual choices that worked really well. That scene where you see the colony and it's like surrounded, the crater is all um, red and black from the fire and the earth being thrown up, and then they pan up the colony through the clouds and you can see the remainder of the colony cylinder standing up above the clouds. Everything seems a little more placid. You can see the glass on the side of the colony. The whole thing, uh, I found that shot to be just like staggering. I mean, it's heaven and hell. You look at the shots of Dublin, everything is black and red and gray. It's all dark. It's full of fire and smoke and it's raining junk. It is the plain of Abaddon. Versus above the clouds where... Everything is blue and quiet and peaceful. And at the very end of the show, when we have the the colony actually break apart and collapse, and the little bit of this disturbance that has broken through the heavens, as it were, recedes. It collapses below. And all of this is from a distance, right? It's not up close. It doesn't feel violent. It feels like peace returning to the heavens. When Judo, towards the beginning of the episode, is experiencing a moment of intense empathy with what's happening around him, the visuals are this sort of swirling, abstract design in red and black, but it looks like a mass of bodies. Like, if you look at it long enough, it it looks like just a mass of intertwining bodies laying amongst each other swirling around. The sound is all muffled moans and cries. Yeah, when I say hellish, I I think they explicitly were making it look like depictions of hell. I agree. And that contrast between heaven and hell, between the calm, cold peacefulness of the sky and the burning ruins of the land also is reflected in the structure of the episode because the episode keeps cutting back and forth between scenes of intense action and excitement and uh, adrenaline with the fighting in the wreckage, with the core fighters being sucked into the vortex, with the Gundam team trying to get onto the Audumla, which is amazing and is going to be a whole separate discussion in a second. But we cut away from those to scenes of peace in Glasgow, on Glemmy's ship, the scene with Puru too, when Puru is in the hospital on the Argama, where there is no fighting, where instead what we get is anticipation, the sense of something worse coming. And this is so challenging for the people making the show because we would expect these action scenes to dispel any tension that gets built up during the calm scenes. But instead, they manage to maintain the excitement of the action, the sense of danger, while also making us fear that something worse is coming. Before we move on, I have two other quick notes about the production of the episode itself. Uh, At the very beginning, we have the uh, swirling air pulling mobile suits and core fighters away from us, but it's head on. We as the audience are directly facing and they are moving directly away from us, which is a very rare angle to do on shots in in film or animation. And when it's done well is very arresting and visually interesting. And I I thought they pulled it off here. Uh, And the other thing is one of the first times that they're flying near the colony itself, 
you can hear metal creaking there. You know, Judo is surprised that the colony is still upright at the beginning of the episode, and the sound gives us a sense of the strain that the structure is under, and that, again, that sense you said of something worse coming, of the tragedy not being done yet. This colony is still going to fall apart, and more of it is going to fall on Dublin. I always like when they give us these complicated, unique environments, like the debris cloud, like the vortex, and then integrate those into the way the episode happens, into the way the battle goes. When uh, the Argama and the Psycho Gundam open fire on each other, but all of their beams are intercepted by the debris cloud, I thought that was great. And it was reminiscent of uh, in Zeta when they smash Axis into the gate of Zidane. And in the aftermath, Jared and Camille are like sniping at each other, but there's so much debris they can't hit each other. Sorry, suddenly overcome thinking about the scene where Bright, we assume, has Pudu and a hospital bed brought on board the bridge. And just the the complete and utter trust in her that it demonstrates that she says, the Argama's in danger. And he says, okay, point us in the right direction and we'll shoot. Like, you're telling me it's serious. I believe you. You're telling me where to shoot and when, and I completely trust you. Let's do it. Bright has learned to trust teenagers with strong feelings about things. And we know that Bright has struggled with the idea of trusting Pudu in the past. While he values her skills, he's also concerned about the threat that she poses. I don't know. It makes the whole thing more heartbreaking to me. I think Pudu wanted to be trusted. I think Pudu wants to be accepted and likes being part of a crew. For all that she is still a bit, you know, possessive of judo, she gets over some of that with time, it seems. And, and now all that progress is erased. She found a place where she belonged, and she was willing to die to protect it. You also brought up, in talking about the tension between the action and the quiet, the scenes of Camille running along the coastline... In the last episode, Camille running felt, it felt right. It felt like it worked. In this episode, it was one of the few things that I felt didn't really work. It didn't, to me, feel like it was adding anything. Yeah, I felt like the whole Camille running thing had been resolved at the end of the prior episode with him, like, reaching the shore and collapsing as he watches the red light on the horizon. He had reached his destination. He had gotten as close to Dublin as he could, so... We know from his internal, possibly also external dialogue, but he's by himself, so they amount to the same thing, that there is part of him that wants to prevent the colony drop. There's part of him that wants to stop it from happening. And then once it's happened, that's when he collapses, right? It's He can no longer do anything that could stop it. But here, what exactly is he running for or towards? And after all of his concern about Pudu, I would have expected Camille to warn or protect Pudu. And these scenes of Camille running are placed at points of like maximum emotional significance. He gets the last scene of the episode. They cut from the funeral to Camille, finally exhausted from his run, collapsing in the rain. What is it supposed to mean? I, I don't know. What purpose does it serve, you know? It didn't really work for me. 
But let's talk about a subplot that really does work. Yes. The Aldumla. Oh my gosh. And the rest of the Gundam team. This whole subplot really demonstrates so much change and development in this group of characters that they are taking independent action, that they're confident about what they should and can do even without someone telling them what to do. They could have gone straight back to the Argama, but they notice, oh, hey, there's the Audumla and it's losing altitude. That's strange. We need to go check on the Audumla. The kids don't wait for orders. They just see a problem and they go to deal with it. And they do so as a team, each one taking on a different role to which they are suited. It also reinforces a lot of the emotion of the episode as a whole in two ways. One, this is the biggest group of survivors we've seen. And are there survivors on the ground? Certainly. There would be people very close to where the colony fell who, because of luck of where they were when it happened, are alive. But we don't see them. We only hear them through judo. Here we have this hangar full of people who are fine. And it is simultaneously like a huge group of civilians, and it's stunning to see them there. You're almost shocked looking at them. And also so completely not enough people. Yeah, I, I doubt there's more than 500 people in that hangar. And you look at them and you think, is this it? Is this everyone who was saved? And, just, you know, it's very emotional. This is part of what I meant when I was talking about how everything is worse than it seemed. The number of people actually rescued is smaller than we thought. All of the Karapa people on the Audumla are dead. The whole mission, everyone Hayato brought, every mobile suit, every Dodai, every Karaba member is gone. And we see the wreckage of those mobile suits, you know, foregrounded in some of the shots. Uh, we know Karaba had other bases, but how many more ships did they have? How many more mobile suits? How much more personnel? What percentage of Karaba has just been completely wiped out by this? And somewhat related to this, part of, I think, why... Camille's marathon down the coast of Scotland fell so flat for me is because just based on having lived through some scary events and things and, and based on what we know of history, I think that shoreline would be crawling with people. I think there would be a ton of people in boats trying to go across to Dublin and see if they need to pick like rescue people out of the ocean or from the shore. Uh, the idea that he would just be completely alone and there wouldn't be a single other person, vehicle, or boat that whole time that he's running feels so fake to me. I, I mean, don't I don't, I don't want to knock the episode too much because I think it is really good. <laughs> I thought, but I, In case it's not clear, I really liked this episode. I thought it was a great episode. But like every depiction of the water around Dublin is uh, totally unrealistic. A shock like that would definitely be causing serious wave action throughout that whole region. There's a brief shot shortly after I think we're seeing the core fighters and mobile suits be like sucked away from us by the disturbances in the air of what that same air is doing to the surface of the water. But it's very brief and mostly the flash of light sort of blinds us to it. We just see like very sharp waves going almost sideways. Also, because of the quantity of stuff that's falling into the water, yeah, I would expect much more wave activity. 
It's not actually the final scene of this episode, but I'm going to think about it as the final scene of the episode. But the Argama and the Odumla are in the sea. They've landed on the water. And Bright leads what remains of the crew in a silent prayer, a moment of silence for everyone that they lost. And that feels like Pudu and like the various members of Karaba who were lost, but also like it's for the city of Dublin itself. It's also the most formal we have ever seen the crew of this ship in the entirety of Double Zeta. Those kids are actually standing at attention. Shoulder to shoulder. Well, ceremonies and rituals are an important part of how we cope with these massive events that are sort of beyond our natural emotional resiliency. These gestures of shared mourning can be powerful tools for healing. And there's something, again, very moving and sad about Bright of all people. Bright who has turned into the adult that we were warned about, the adult that we kind of hate, you know, talking about necessary sacrifices and necessary risks. And here instead, talking about unacceptable loss. And he doesn't just mean the whole city, he means the individuals too. And that it finishes with this black rain and that even as we contemplate the human loss of this horrible attack, Gundam also wants to remind us constantly about the Earth. And all of this fighting supposedly over the Earth itself just keeps poisoning it, just keeps making it worse. And now our research, a history of cloning science, presented by Nina. As we discussed in the talkback, cloning in science fiction is never just cloning science. It's a way to talk about conceptions of self and identity, conflict between religion and science and technology, ethics, and much more. But the science is very real (laughs) and has advanced in significant ways over the last hundred years. At the same time, as often happens in science reporting, Many of these advances in technology have been exaggerated, distorted, and dramatized for public consumption to fuel interest, support, outrage, fear, and hope. While I hope to do another research piece this season about the history of cloning in science fiction and perfect copies in science fiction, fantasy, and mythology, this week I want to focus on the science. What is the history of cloning science and what were the major breakthroughs and controversies in the years leading up to Gundam Double Zeta? Many recent sources that discuss cloning focus on Dolly the Sheep, a clone born in 1996, because the cloning of Dolly represented a breakthrough in cloning technology. But there is a long history of scientific developments around cloning, in terms of technical procedures and our understanding of DNA and cell division. First off, what is a clone? (laughs) A clone is a cell or organism that is genetically identical to the original cell or organism from which it is derived. There are tons of naturally occurring clones. Many single-celled organisms and plants reproduce asexually, and those offspring are clones. Think of a starfish splitting apart, and each part growing a new starfish. Or when we grow a whole new plant from a plant cutting. Identical twins in mammals are another example of naturally occurring clones. I mentioned growing plants from cuttings just now. When we think of or talk about cloning now, we are usually thinking of animals. 
But cloning techniques for propagating plants, such as cutting and grafting, have been around for a long time. In fact, most bananas, potatoes, apples, grapes, pears, and peaches are from clones. As one source pointed out, growing a banana tree from seed rather than from a cutting takes 30 years. And so for mass production, uh, we have a lot of incentives to use cloning techniques for plants. By the late 1800s, scientists understood that cells became differentiated, which is to say, an embryo starts out with all of its cells being identical, but over time, different cells become different organs and tissues. What they were trying to determine through a variety of experiments is how does that differentiation happen? One hypothesis had been that all the necessary information was in the zygote, or fertilized egg cell, but that as cell division took place, the information was also divvied up, that the genetic information of a cell would diminish as the cell went through divisions and differentiation. Early cloning experiments were actually efforts to test this hypothesis. In the first ever demonstration of artificial embryo twinning, Hans Dreisch separated two cell sea urchin embryos, but then found that each cell began to divide to form new identical embryos and to grow into two identical adult sea urchins, demonstrating that the whole genome was replicated during cell division. A 1902 experiment by Hans Spemann was pretty much the same, but with vertebrates, newts to be specific. But where the sea urchin embryo cells had been easy to separate, one source said they just had to be shaken, the newt embryo cells were stickier. And here I learned a fact that I had never heard before and will probably never forget. Spemann used a tiny loop of baby hair cinched between the cells to separate them. Learning odd facts like that is probably my favorite part of this job. But returning to Spemann's experiment, he also separated the cells at different stages in their development and determined that cells could only successfully twin up to a certain stage. Past that, this method didn't work to produce identical adult creatures. In 1938, the same Hans Spemann proposed an at that point not technically feasible experiment to remove the nucleus from an unfertilized egg and replace it with the nucleus from a differentiated cell, what is now considered a fundamental cloning technique. In 1943, embryologist Robert Briggs wanted to determine whether, quote, the genome of older somatic nuclei remains equivalent to the zygote nucleus throughout development. For practical reasons, Briggs' experiment used frog embryos. Frog eggs measure approximately 2 millimeters in diameter, small but visible to the naked eye. For comparison, a human egg cell is only 100 micrometers, just 5 to 10 percent of the diameter of a frog egg. Other practical benefits included that the early stages of frog development take place outside of the parents' bodies, making it possible to observe the developmental cycle under laboratory conditions with a microscope. And frogs make a lot of eggs, thousands at a time. Over the next seven years or so, Briggs developed and improved microsurgical techniques for the procedure of nuclear transfer. Among other things, he needed a glass pipette with a diameter greater than that of the nucleus of the egg cell, but less than that of the cell membrane, which feels awfully specific and also really small. In 1952, Briggs, who had at that point been joined by another scientist, Thomas King, successfully replaced a frog egg nucleus with a nucleus from a frog embryo and had the resulting embryo grow into a tadpole. Briggs and King weren't interested in cloning per se, 
They were, quote, investigating nuclear potential, but as a result, they established the totipotency of blastula nuclei, which is a fancy way of saying that the nuclei of very early embryo cells can direct those undifferentiated cells to turn into any of the differentiated cells of the organism. The nucleus directs cell growth and organism development, and a single early embryonic cell can successfully grow a healthy adult organism, although the earlier that cell is isolated, the better. To quote another source, the pioneers of nuclear transplantation concluded in a classic understatement that although the method of nuclear transplantation should be valuable principally for the study of nuclear differentiation, it may also have other uses. Do you happen to know why it's better to isolate that cell earlier? Well, you have to isolate it before it begins differentiating. And there may be like a more detailed scientific explanation now for why the earlier you isolate the cell, the better. Uh, but at this point, they just knew that that was more successful and that after a certain point, they had not had successful like growth of a fully grown creature from other cells. However, that was going to change very shortly. By 1958, John Gurdon had conducted a successful nuclear transfer from a differentiated cell, the intestinal cell of a tadpole, into a frog egg cell, and this cell underwent normal division and became a tadpole, suggesting that cells retain all of their genetic material even as they divide and differentiate, and that cloning from differentiated cells was possible. In 1970, Gurdon went on to conduct a similar experiment, but in which the cloned frogs were followed through adulthood. Previous frog cloning only followed through tadpole or juvenile stages, and they wanted additional evidence of healthy and normal development through adulthood for these organisms. When they were following those adult frogs, did they observe like an adolescent stage where the clones started to turn on each other? Not to my knowledge, but I haven't read the full studies. Maybe it's in there. And in 1963, Dr. Tang, a Chinese embryologist, conducted the first successful cloning of fish using cells from an adult male carp. It was the most complex organism cloned to date and appeared to be entirely successful. Not specific to cloning, but I think relevant for discussions of genetic science and sci-fi is the next breakthrough on my list. The first successful gene splicing was in 1973 by Paul Berg and Stanley N. Cohen. This was a major breakthrough for genetic engineering and enabled the creation of transgenic clones whose genome would contain and express DNA from another organism, a technique mostly used to get organisms like bacteria to make mammalian proteins for medical purposes, for instance, insulin. So in this case, you're talking about, say, to use an extreme, totally unrealistic example, like if you spliced, I don't know, cat DNA into a human cell. Yes, although in theory you would be doing that for a purpose. So maybe you wanted to give somebody really good night vision, and so you changed like the DNA around human eyes or something. Mm. Nobody, nobody's actually doing this, to my knowledge. Although it crops up in science fiction all the time that people make like glow-in-the-dark rabbits or <laughs> all kinds of uh, you know spooky chimera by combining genetic material. Yeah, the big breakthrough in terms of proteins is that uh, by doing the gene splicing, you're getting the bacteria to create this protein that's naturally occurring for many people, but some people don't necessarily have enough of it and it's indistinguishable from what their body would naturally have made if it could. 
And so, you know, fewer side effects, works better, etc. I think we've also gotten goats to produce specific human proteins in their milk and things like that. That's more, that's more recent. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the first clone mammal embryo from embryonic rather than adult cells was by J. Derek Bromhall in 1975. He used rabbit cells, and an advanced embryo developed but was never implanted. Still, it was seen as proof of concept for successful nuclear transfer with mammals. Just three years later, in 1978, the first child conceived by in vitro fertilization, Leslie Brown in the UK, was born. Obviously, in vitro is not cloning, but the success of the procedure demonstrated that human embryos could be successfully developed in lab conditions, transferred to a birth mother's uterus, implant, grow, be born healthy. That same year, there was a widely publicized claim of human cloning. Science journalist David Rorvik, who had bylines in Time and the New York Times, among other high-profile publications, claimed that an anonymous millionaire had approached him in an effort to clone an heir for himself. Rorvik wrote a book that he claimed was a non-fiction account of his involvement in this anonymous millionaire's scheme and its eventual success. The book is called In His Image, The Cloning of a Man. The publisher was later sued by Bromhall for defamation. Bromhall also alleged that the book used content from his doctoral thesis and his name without permission. Just a year later, in 1979, a major breakthrough received a lot of press. Cal Ilmensee successfully raised genetically identical mice using the embryo splitting technique, which had been modified to work on the smaller mammalian cells. I'll include the New York Times article talking about the experiment in the show notes. The point is, it made mainstream news. There were just a couple of problems. Not only could no one replicate the experiment, members of his own lab accused Ilmensee of fraud, and investigations by the university where he worked found numerous errors and discrepancies in both his records and his grant applications based on the experiments. Regardless of these scandals, experiments continued and had effects beyond the scientific community. In 1980, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that a genetically created new bacterium, a non-natural man-made microorganism, could be patented. And 1984 marked the first successful cloning of a mammal using the nuclear transfer technique. Dr. Steen Willitson cloned a lamb from a developing sheep embryo cell. His experiment was then repeated by other scientists with other animals. And that brings us to just before the release of Double Zeta. Dolly the sheep, the first mammal cloned from somatic differentiated cells, will not be born for another 12 years, although using techniques developed by Willitson. I'd like to conclude by addressing a few other myths and facts about cloning that come into play with how cloning is portrayed in fiction. First off, clones have the same genes, but can have different gene expression, and so a different physical appearance. This is most obvious in spotted cows and calico cats, but is also true of identical twins and humans, and would be true of man-made clones as well. Similarly, a person might think that clones, human or other animal, would have the same personality and temperament. But since both nature and nurture come into play, and those traits are affected by a poorly understood combination of genetics, environment, and experience, clones can still be quite different from each other. In a show, it's obviously easier to convey twins or clones by drawing them identically. 
But we do get a nice interplay in this episode between the idea of cloning to propagate a desired trait, new typism, and the ways in which clones raised and trained differently would develop into distinct people. Another point to keep in mind is that cloning in the 80s and into the 90s was a terribly inefficient method of reproduction. Various studies from the 1990s provided success rates, given as newborns as a percentage of the number of clone embryos transferred to uteri, ranging from 1% to 80%, depending on the specific mammal and the type of cell from which the genetic material was extracted. I have so many questions. Are the Pudus clones of an adult person? Are they entirely genetically engineered? The two Pudus we've seen so far look to be around the same age. Did Glemmy have a lab somewhere full of surrogates, trying to gestate and give birth to as many Pudus as possible? Are there older and younger Pudus as well? Will Double Zeta ever answer these questions? Hmm. Probably not. Well, and the Pudus appear to be between, you know, 9 and 11 years old. Glemmy himself is around 18. So did he start this whole program when he was 9? Did he inherit it from his mysterious parents? Do they have some never-shown-and-never-mentioned accelerated growing techniques? Although uses for cloning technology include things like cloned animals that produce human proteins for treatment of disease, production of animal models to study and treat diseases, genetic improvement of livestock, and improvements in the use of animal tissues and organs for xenotransplantation, humans continue to be fascinated by the idea of copies of ourselves. Before we finish Double Zeta, I hope to spend a little more time digging into why, but for now, we can look at the scientific developments of the time and see that just as aeronautics made life in space seem less like science fiction and more like a real possibility in humanity's future, cloning technology made the possibility of human clones seem less like a spooky trope or thought exercise and more like an urgent ethical and philosophical question. A girl dies in Dublin. A hundred thousand girls died in Dublin. Where the pillar of heaven trembles. Where the pillar fell. Poor space girl. Little sister. A sister to no one. A dress hanging on a wall, promising a better future. How many dresses on how many walls? Call her Water Dweller. Naiad of the bathtub. Call her Elkie Purdue. Let her have her name. The self. The other. In the Irish Sea, the horizon divides light from dark, heaven from hell. The raging waters make a twisted mirror. They return reflections of wicked things. In Ireland, they tell stories of children, light-haired, blue-eyed, just like stolen out of bed, dragged beneath the hills, where the fairies dance. And of the child-seeming thing left behind, wearing the child's face, answering to her name, but changed inside, Unruly, violent, and deceitful, ageless. Will you go to the fairy circle where the toadstools grow? Will you find her under the hill where the pipes wail? Like Orpheus seeking Eurydice, like Janet freeing Tamlin. But the circles are all burning, and the hills are all flattened. 
in that place, in that place where, heaven, where fell. heaven fell. Next time on episode 3.35, Long Live the Argama, we cover Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta, episode 37, and hand-holding? How lewd! The only thing worse than using child soldiers is not using them. Like kids with a new toy. When nobody thinks you're funny. Let's see your precious adults handle a real crisis. Some new, new type thing. Another step towards an anarcho-gundamist collective. And, child soldiers of the world unite. You have nothing to lose but your commanding officers. You will see the battlefield of new types. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is New York City Instrumental by Spinning Merkaba. The eulogy for Puru in this episode includes the song World of Ruin, by Damiano Baldoni. Radio Free Shangri-La is performed by the MSB Players. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram, at GundamPodcast, on Facebook, at Facebook.com slash GundamPodcast, or by email, at gundampodcast at gmail.com or why not share your wrong Gundam opinions with the world by shouting Puru to Puru to where? out your window at passersby we won't hear you but the world needs to know and thank you for listening Day one of podcasting without having the Shars counterattack mic. A boo! <laughs> <laughs> just makes it harder to justify fancy equipment for just the two of us oh, for a yeah, single yeah. podcast. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> the trick, Nina, is that we need to start more podcasts. No, the trick is that we need to get other people with podcasts to share equipment. Hmm. What if those other people were identical clones of the two of us? No. I promise, they only kill the original and replace them like 20% of the time. 
sorry, it will be too hot very soon. <laughs> I am worried about that. Yeah, speaking of Neo Zeon commanders and their music preferences, like Rock on Dakaran is definitely in the gym lift, listening to like thrash metal and lifting. But Mashima and Kiara are at the club. They're dancing to Eurobeat. I don't know. I bet Mashima is really into like ballroom. I'm with you with Kiara. I I don't. <laughs> I, can't, I like I can't get this image of Mashima at the club out of my head. Um, that sounds like a personal problem to me. <laughs> and I think we can agree. Glemmy wants everybody to believe that he listens to classical. This is Mobile Suit Breakdown, and I'm Tom too. I'm just like Tom, but with only the most podcasting parts. Oh no. <laughs> you get a lot of zingers today. That was good. I thought a lot about this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, but there will never be a technology with extendo arms that doesn't seem silly. You know, they get into the hangar. Are there any Karaba people here? No? Okay, I guess we're taking charge. You know, the two episodes that she was in the Argama's sickbay, the dress that Judo had bought for Lena and that Pudu wore that one time is sitting on the wall next to her bed. It also wouldn't surprise me to learn that the little pink nightdress is also Lena's. It looks vaguely familiar. 